Hello, and welcome back to the Wishing You All podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Amy Albero, founder of Revive Center for Wellness. And I'm Catherine Van Eyck. We're both licensed therapists and wellness enthusiasts. We know how overwhelming it can be to figure out how to navigate your wellness journey. So each episode, we hope to bring all the pieces together to help you figure out what fits best for you. This week on Wishing You Well, we are joined again by Carly King. Carly is a licensed marriage and family therapist who works at Revive. She was on a previous podcast with us and it was all about premarital counseling. So definitely check that out if you have not listened already. But today we're talking to Carly a little, we're taking a little pivot here. We're talking to Carly about infidelity. Why does it happen? Is this relationship salvageable afterwards? We'll answer some of these questions and more with Carly. But first we have some announcements. For those of you who do not know or maybe need a refresher, Revive is made up of a group of wellness professionals focused on serving the needs of the whole person, mind and body. We do this by integrating a wide array of services that are designed to improve a person's overall health, including therapy, nutrition, groups, and more. But it doesn't stop there. In addition to meeting virtually with clients, we have two physical office locations in Stanford and Norwalk, Connecticut, and a brand new office in Miami, Florida. So if you're a listener in Florida, come check us out in Brickell. And if you're not in Florida, let your friends and loved ones who are there know all about us. More information on all of our office locations and about Revive in general can be found at revivecenterforwellness.com. Have you been watching Reactivity TV, which is our weekly bonus podcast that we release each week exclusively on our YouTube channel? Odds are whatever trending show is out, we have been all over it with our therapist perspectives. Every week, Catherine and I commentate on shows like The Bachelorette, which is finally back. So you know we are reacting to all of that messiness weekly. Besides The Bachelor franchise, there's so much to watch and so much for us to react to. And we are always looking for suggestions on what show we should cover next. So let us know what you want us to give our therapist reactions to by sending us an email to wishingyouwell at revivecfw.com. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And thank you for following, rating, and reviewing. We really appreciate your feedback and truly love having the opportunity to provide this information to all of our listeners. So please continue giving us those ratings and reviews. It really helps us out. Thank you. All right. Let's get into our episode. Living, living. Oh, and well, 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 we feel it. Take care of ourselves. Hi, Carly. Hi. It's so nice to be back. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm I'm excited. I'm yeah. I'm so excited. So excited. You you had one of our most popular episodes to date when you were back with us a few months ago. At this point, talking with us about premarital counseling, and so. We're so excited. I know we talked about this right before we started recording, but like this is such a juicy topic and we're so happy to have you here to talk about it with us. Yes. Yes. I love to talk infidelity. So I'm happy to be here to talk about it, especially, you know, in this context. So Mm -hmm. I was just going to say talking about it is can be really interesting and it's juicy because we see things all the time in the media that are, you know, intriguing and kind of get our, I don't know what I'm trying to say. We're just get to what you were going to (laughs) say. Sorry, I ruined your flow. I I ruined it myself. (laughs) It definitely is, is a fun topic. Definitely, you know, juicy, like we're saying, but there's so much more to it than what we see on the surface. So really excited to dig into that with you today. But before we even get into it, can you give our listeners a little refresher about kind of who you are and what you do? Sure. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I currently practice in Pennsylvania and Connecticut. I work with individuals, adults only, um, but individuals and couples. And a lot of my work does tend to focus on relationships, um, even with individuals. And so I tend to look at things from a systemic perspective. I bring a lot of like narrative therapy into my work, just in terms of trying to understand people's stories and their backgrounds and context and influences 
And with couples, I tend to use a lot of the Gottman method as well as emotion-focused therapy, uh, which comes up a lot, especially with issues of trust. Mm. So definitely excited to talk more about that. Mm. I can see how that might come up today. (laughs) (laughs) So, So in your experience working with individuals and or couples, I'm imagining that you've worked with people who have been navigating through infidelity or have experienced infidelity. I have. And it's a very intimate place to be in with couples. There are times where I'm maybe the only person who knows or one of a few, uh, just depending on the circumstance. So it is a, a very vulnerable time for couples to seek out help. And yeah, sometimes I'm there with that front row seat to how things are playing out um, in the aftermath. So, Well, what are we, well, we keep saying infidelity. What are we talking about exactly? What do we mean by infidelity? And what do you mean when we're talking about infidelity? And I was going to say, like, we could all three have different answers to that, depending, you know, like that is kind of the nuance, I guess, of the topic is that there is no black and white for sure answer as to what it is. There are some things that I would say most people would agree is considered infidelity, but particularly with technology, with like the access that we have, you know, to other people, like those lines can get really, really blurred. So I don't personally have a definition of infidelity that I like place on couples or even encourage other couples to use. But I think a lot of times when we're talking about infidelity, what we mean is some sort of violation of trust. And so that's kind of how I'm viewing it. Whenever trust has been broken or compromised in some way, that's usually the space of infidelity, whether we agree on it was actually cheating or not. Mm-hmm. Right. And and infidelity doesn't just have to, as you're saying, like it's it's kind of a broad definition. It doesn't doesn't have to just be, you know, my my partner had sex with someone else. It can relate to like there's financial infidelity, there's like kind of digital infidelity, there's so many so many avenues for trust to be broken within a relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. So you do work with couples and even when you're not working with couples and you're working with individuals, like you said, you work from a very, a very relational framework. So how often do you encounter this with any of your clients? That's a good question. And I don't know that I can quantify it. I I would say because a lot of my work with individuals does involve talking about relationship issues, it comes up, you know, pretty frequently, whether it was past experiences, current ones, fear of the future. But I would say with couples specifically, I don't know that I've ever worked with a couple where trust was not a factor in the conversation, even if it had been violated to the extent of, you know, one person accusing the other of infidelity. I think this core issue of trust is at the root of most couples work. So I would say like pretty frequently. Mm. So would you say there's a difference then? I mean, you keep coming back to this idea of trust and I, I can imagine that there are listeners that might be thinking like, well, that's different. Like when so-and-so cheated on me, that that was the thing that, you know, blew up our relationship or really exaggerated you know, these these issues that we're having. So how how would you delineate between the two or bet- between trust, breaking trust in general, or maybe something so emotionally jarring? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the definition that the client places on the infidelity or the breach of trust really matters a lot more than what I think, you know? So obviously any sort of cheating has a tendency to like magnify, like that moment becomes magnified, right? But it's totally possible that there were breaches of trust prior to that, that had nothing to do with stepping outside of the relationship. And sometimes that can be one of the contributing factors to like how we end up here. So in the way that that I'm framing it, there's not much of a difference. But in terms of the perspective of the client that's coming in with the issue, there's like 
a huge difference between the two. But ultimately, the way that I'm interacting with it is is actually kind of the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I I do notice, and I and I imagine like this is in, intentional in terms of the way that you're you work with clients, like in that frame of breach of trust. It 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 almost feels kind of like easier to stomach in some way, like calling it infidelity or calling it cheating. It, like there's a judgmental frame that goes along with that, which makes it really hard to get to a point of maybe working through it or working or just try, trying to understand it. And so I think your your lens through which you see this is is probably really helpful for your clients as well. I mean, I hope so. I, I hope it helps to somewhat normalize it, not in a way where we're like, oh yeah, everybody cheats or everyone deals with this, but kind of like everyone struggles with this issue of trust and finding that balance in a relationship of like respecting people's ability to make their own decisions, but then also wanting that consistency and like reliability and dependability that comes with trust. So I hope that it normalizes it. It, it might piss a few people off <laughs> also because some people like that judgment that comes along with the word cheating or infidelity, like it does more justice, I think, to the person who has been violated. So I think there is a balance with that of like not speaking about it so generally that you kind of pull all of the weight out of like the experience for the person whose trust was violated. Um, So I think there's kind of like a nice balance with that. But yeah, that is how I'm framing it in my mind and how I'm intending to interact with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Got it. So in your, in your experience, and just like in your training, like, why does this happen? Like, why is this something that is prevalent in relationships? This is such <laughs> a big question that, like, the thought of trying to wrap my words around it, like, feels overwhelming. Because I just think there can be so many contributing factors depending on the individuals, depending on the circumstances, the context. There can be so, so, so many factors. I was recently listening to an audiobook, State of Affairs by Esther Perel, and she makes such a eloquent and thorough argument as to like why she thinks at least the modern day infidelity like even comes up, why how marriage has evolved, how our views around infidelity have shifted over time. And so if I was kind of boiling it down, I think she attributes it to just some changes in what we expect out of our relationships. And to some degree, I think she even refers to it as a sense of entitlement that our relationships are supposed to be this source of stability and affirmation. And like, it's supposed to be our source almost of everything, you know, it's supposed to be our best friend and our lover. And we're supposed to parent together and make life decisions together and have all of that housed in like one relationship that it just puts a a tremendous amount of weight on that one relationship and so she kind of makes the argument that the although people have always cheated they've cheated for different reasons and nowadays oftentimes it's like people are not necessarily just cheating because they're unhappy but maybe because they think they could be happier or because they they like the version of themselves that they become with, you know, this other person or in this outside context. So, I mean, from, from trauma to curiosity to issues within the relationship, there's just a host of things that can lead to infidelity. And that still wasn't a thorough enough answer. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Well, and I think what you're pointing at in like with with these expectations that relationships have nowadays is that the infidelity, the affair is a result of a lot of different issues that are going on already. It can be, it can be. That's not always the case, but it absolutely can be which is a big reason that in the recovery process, 
there has to be some space for meaning making. That's it, that's what Esther refers to it as, and, and it's referred to that. It's referred to in that same way in other books on the topic, where you kind of get below the surface and are not just looking at what happened, but you're kind of looking at the entire context of the situation, almost like the environment within which it existed, and you're able to look at all of the different elements and contributing factors that you know, may have played a role. So yes, it can be the result of a host of different issues. And sometimes it's not about the relationship at all. Sometimes mm-hmm. it can just be about the individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you were saying that a person might like enjoy the way that they might be like seen or viewed or or even just that experience. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, when in other contexts, when Catherine and I have talked about infidelity, whether it's been on Wishing You Well or on Reactivity TV, we've we've often highlighted that infidelity is typically a symptom of something else, like whether that's, again, like within the relationship or within one of the individuals in the in the relationship. And I think like it it's so much deeper than what we're than what we see on the surface as like just the act. And yeah, I imagine there's there's a lot to be learned and understood about uh, what led to it, the why, the, the the deeper meaning, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just take into account like cultural influences and norms, you know, societal norms. If we normalize infidelity in some ways or with one particular gender or in one particular context, that it influences how we might view our own participation, right? As like, "Eh, that's not that bad, or it's not as bad as this, Mm -hmm. right? So context really matters a lot. But I think what you're getting to is like, often there's some unmet need. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where that emotion focused therapy comes in, because like, regardless of if it exists within the individual or within the relationship, there's usually some need that is driving that decision and that can be like a need for for like independence or freedom it could be a need for adventure it could be a need for um, affirmation and validation and attention like but there's usually something going on that's not being met in some way and it may come out in the form of infidelity right right so so then is it enough to then meet that need some other way for that person to stop being unfaithful yeah 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 i think it can be if there's a desire there Mm -hmm. right like if if the person wants to understand what maybe led to it for them like how they got there and then they come to better understand that need and they have more choice in the matter of as to how they go about meeting it then yeah, like that is essentially how you grow from the experience. But if you don't take the time to self-reflect or to do that exploration, you may justify it in other ways, you know, or you may just kind of write it off. Or for a lot of people, just say it was like, it was just a bad choice. It was, I just made a mistake. I just want to move on from it. I don't want to talk about it, right? Like just kind of want to file it away. But if you take a moment to kind of understand what led to that, you probably have a better chance of preventing it from, you know, blindsiding you again, if that's how you feel it happened. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, and it sounds like what we're, what we're getting to, and I know what one thing Catherine and I really wanted to ask you about is something that you've been alluding to, which is like, like, are relationships actually salvageable? Like, as after like infidelity, like, like, what does that look like? Like, what are the circumstances that like help a a couple or a relationship progress or sustain, I guess, after this has happened? Yeah, that's a question that I get all the time. And of course, my belief is, yeah, of course, it's salvageable. It takes two people that want that. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that actually want to get to a healthier place or a place that feels more balanced or feels more honest. Uh, And so like what that outcome may look like for one couple could be very different than another. You know, one couple may come out of it with much more transparency and like honesty 
honesty and openness in their relationship and never have that violation of trust again in that way. Another couple may come out of it and and choose non-monogamy as one of their solutions. And that is their way of salvaging the relationships. So I think it is salvageable as long as you have two people who still want to be connected to one another and want to figure out some sort of shared path forward. Mm -hmm. That's probably like the, the first step is do you actually want that? And sometimes people say that they want that, but deep down, like (laughs) they really want retaliation or they really want to nail the person to the cross in terms of like, they just like the control that it gives them the upper hand when they know that they weren't in the wrong. And so like sometimes people's expression of what they want, wanting to move forward, wanting to get to a better place. Sometimes we sabotage those efforts because there are other wants that like we want to meet first. Mm. (laughs) So sometimes it's kind of like clearing that path to get to what both people actually want. Mm. Oh, yeah. I could see, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. What do those conversations sound like? Like you, you, you used the word recovery before, like what, what should like couples be asking themselves or asking one another or thinking about? Good question. First, I do think it is, it's a challenging thing to walk through regardless. I think it becomes that much more challenging when you don't have the support of anyone for that matter, but particularly a professional who is, you know, knowledgeable about the topic and can offer something other than just a listening ear or, you know, friends sometimes wanting to be helpful will offer advice and all types of things that they'll kind of lay on top of your feelings. Um, So I do think it's something that you should consider seeking professional help with. But I really think the first question is kind of to yourself in terms of like, what is the impact of this on me, whether you were the one who was unfaithful or the one whose trust was violated? And what do I actually like want out of this relationship moving forward? And I think that's a question you should ask yourself separate from your partner, like maybe without knowing their answer fully, because like that's going to get to the root of, of what you actually are aiming for. Uh, and if you both want to continue the relationship, I think that's a, a really good time to to start seeking out that support. And when you say, what does that look like? I mean, I think it depends on when the couple is reaching out because I tend to get it almost in like two, one of two phases, either they're in crisis, like they are at the moment where it was just revealed, whatever that infidelity was, um, whether it was discovered or shared openly, And so they are like in the thick of that. They're, you know, navigating all of the anger and frustration and fear and that comes along with that. But then there are also couples who go through that crisis and do their own form of repairs, even if some of it is a little like homemade, you know, they just kind of (laughs) like tape some stuff up and (laughs) just try to like put a little bandaid on it and keep going. And then they find that months, years down the line, they're still struggling with this issue of trust, or it's still coming up in arguments. And so it like depending on where you find the couple that like has a lot to do with what the starting point is as to Mm -hmm. whether we're like, we're trying to like plug a current wound versus if we're trying to go back and, you know, look at what happened years or months ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that that can look really different. What what is your approach? How does your approach change? Or how does your approach change when the wound is fresh or the wound is just being reopened? Mm -hmm. Well, when the wound is fresh, there are certain things that like I'm just going to expect come with it, which is like the person whose trust was violated is likely going to have some sort of emotional reaction, whether that's anger, whether that's sadness, whether that's jealousy, whether that's withdrawal, you know, trying to like stuff things down, but they they're in the midst of their fight or flight moment. And so we have to kind of understand that, but also for the person who was unfaithful or who, who committed that violation of trust, 
it really depends on their perspective on it as well. In some cases, they may not feel like their partner's reaction is like proportionate to the situation or the violation. And so it kind of depends. If they're in a state where both people agree that it was a violation of trust and kind of carry the same perspective about it, then then that's where we're going to start. But if we're in a place where there's some sort of disagreement about that, I think the first step is trying to get the offending party to empathize with their partner's experience, whether they agree that they should react in the way that they are. Just having them connect with that pain is usually the first step in trying to like build some sort of repair. And so that usually that's the first thing that we're doing is I'm trying to understand how well that person can connect with their partner's pain, articulate it, empathize with it. Like how do they interact with it? I would say it, it, that's the first phase. I found the same, the same to be true. Like when, when I've worked with couples that sometimes they're not on the same page. And part, part of that work is really just the therapist empathizing with, you know, whoever was not the, the, the violator, the, the violatee. And you might be sitting in that for a long time with, with clients before getting to that next phase, as long as it just also depends on how long they might need that for and how long it will take for the other person to, to, like you said, empathize with them. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, when it comes to, there's a lot of modeling that we do as therapists, just in general, in terms of, you know, validating people's feelings. And of course, the hope is that both people are picking up on that, that we're speaking to both people with empathy and respect. And so even though you may not be feeling so fond of the person who violated your trust, that you're still witnessing me speaking to them in a manner that's kind and giving them space to, you know, express themselves at times. Uh, And so that that does have to go both ways. And sometimes it can help the person who violated the trust to just see what it looks like to empathize, whether you agree or not. They don't know if I actually think it's cheating. I might be sitting there thinking like, that's not that big of a deal, you know, to me, maybe. But regardless, if the person is expressing that it impacted them and that they feel violated in some way and that they're struggling to trust their partner, then I'm going to empathize with what that experience is like for them. And I've found it is very hard to move forward without that, without them feeling like the other person gets it. And I just try to reiterate that getting it does not mean always that you agree. In some cases, you just get it and understand what they're saying they feel. You have a different feeling about it, or maybe you would feel differently if it were done to you. But regardless, you're empathizing with that person's pain. Most of the time when couples come later down the road, that's usually where a big part of the issue is, is that their pain was never really validated or affirmed by their partner. Uh, maybe the partner prefers like not to talk about it. They're just kind of like, let's leave that in the past. And so the person is just kind of left there with all of those feelings and no one to really bear witness or to acknowledge how that impacts them moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like such a critical first step that anything you lay on top of it without that that core step like you're you're gonna have to go back because you're missing something there Mm -hmm. gosh i have two i have two questions that i i want to ask i just don't know in which order but one is like the the person whose trust has been violated i think this is something you alluded to before like there is an interesting power shift that happens um, in that that person in in some ways has more of the power, so to speak. And so how how does that get balanced? You know, within couples work, like having having kind of a balance of power um, is so important and critical. Um, and if you are working with a couple where like there is like, again, someone who violated trust and someone who's been violated, there is a quote unquote morality 
um, maybe that's in the room. So how how does that get balanced? How how can I guess even the violating partner be empathized with, but also not without uh, invalidating the <laughs> violated partner? Mm-hmm. It just hearing you describe it, it's like yeah, it's a very delicate dance that that you end up doing, and. I know there's like varied research on the topic of power imbalances. Um, I happen to be of of the belief that like there's no such thing as finding that complete balance. I think that inevitably like there are going to be power differences and that can be in a host of like different ways, but it's more so how you yield that power. Mm -hmm. And so, so if the person whose trust has been violated is yielding that power over that other person um, and maybe not even allowing them to empathize with the, with their pain, like not giving them any room to try and like bridge that gap, then I'm probably going to step in and just notice that with them and, and try to talk about, well, what is the end goal here? Because if you, again, nail that person to the cross, you like, you got them. Now what? Right. Like, is it, is, are you just going to pin them down forever or are we going to, are we trying to get to a place where it feels a little bit safer to maybe let that down? That's what I would kind of pick up on if that's happening is that they don't feel safe to put that power down for them mm-hmm. or to yield it differently. And mm-hmm. so like, how can we create more safety to where you maybe don't feel the need mm-hmm. to do that anymore in a way that is damaging to the relationship moving forward sure yeah it's a defense mechanism for sure yeah right and i imagine the the worry that that might happen like feeling kind of ganged up on might keep kind of the the violating partner from going to therapy kind of like the fear around that but my second question was going to be how much do the details of the who the what the when the why like how much does that matter (laughs) <laughs> to different people, different amounts, mm-hmm. right? I think we know there are like varying degrees of violation. And some of those, uh, I would venture to kind of a, a, making a general statement, but I would say most of us kind of have like this tiered system and some we can kind of agree are like, maybe milder, that might be like your online flirting, maybe, or, you know, social, something on social media that feels like it's crossing a line, a heart, or, you know, a comment, or something along those lines. And then you have those violations that can be like, huge breaches of trust, right? And on the more extreme end, and that might be something like an affair with someone you know, someone, a friend or someone at work or, you know, or a a child that was produced from this violation of trust where there's no going back. You're like, now you're going down a path where, you know, you have to contend with this forever. And so there are definitely degrees to it, but I would say it, it more so depends on like the person whose trust was violated where they categorize it. Mm -hmm. Um, So to them, if it is just a, you know, minor issue that they can move past, maybe we can, there's a little less to work through. But if it's like top of the list for them, we've probably got like quite a few hurdles that we've got to jump before we can get back to a place that feels more balanced there. So to me personally, it does not matter in terms of like, if both of you want to work on the relationship and one's been cheating for 20 years and they decide that they want to come and work on it, then we're going to start right there. But for other people, it's like that sometimes the details are the deal breaker. Hmm. And what, if, what about the details in which it becomes revealed? Like if the person who was the violator of trust comes clean and tells their partner what's been going on uh, compared to when the partner just finds out or gets, you know, this person gets caught. Mm -hmm. So I have, I have 
mixed feelings about this particular question, because I do think when you're trying to move forward and rebuild trust, it is helpful to have honesty, like from that moment moving forward, right? Because you're trying to establish a new foundation where the things that I say to you, you can trust. And the things, you know, you say to me, I, I can believe them to be true. So I do think that it can be damaging to not fully tell the truth, you know, once something is revealed, because as it unfolds, and then it's kind of like more and more is discovered later, you're having to redo all of that work. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's helpful to be honest about it, you know, once it is out there. But the reason that I say I have mixed feelings about it is because sometimes people's reasons for airing things out um, can actually be a little more selfish than it is empathetic to the other person. Like if your partner has no idea and believes the relationship to be relatively like healthy and they're satisfied with it and you're carrying this weight or this guilt and, and this burden, in some instances, it's a way of like taking that burden off of yourself because you no longer have to like lie about it or hide it. But in a lot of ways, you're just setting that weight onto your partner. And so what is meant to be kind of this freeing experience for the person who violated the trust can often be just like a huge weight on the person who has to then receive that and then sit with that, that truth, right? Depending on how many details were shared or what evidence they have of it, like you can't unknow something. Mm. So once you've shared that and that's out, you know, you, you have to contend with the impact of that on your partner and how much that may hurt them. So I just say I'm of two minds because I would never encourage someone to be dishonest, like, you know, purposely just to save, quote unquote, the relationship. Um, but I do think you have to deliver that truth with like care and empathy. And sometimes that's a little easier to do with the support of a professional who can kind of help you find the language, you know, to be able to express it in a way and provide a space for the person who's receiving all of that truth. Yeah, I'm just, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about those circumstances. Like you said, you can't unknow something. And yeah, I, I wonder about that sometimes too. Like in, in a lot of my, my work with clients is at this point in my career, mostly individually based and working with people mm -hmm. that are engage, engaging in or have engaged in relationships outside of their their marriage, like there is an aspect of like the the relationship is kind of functioning okay. And so is ignorance bliss in a sense? You know, I don't I don't know. It's 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 a it's an interesting question. It really is. And, and I, I don't think there's a blanket answer that works, you know, for everyone. But sometimes it is helpful to work with the offending person to just, you know, process their own feelings of guilt, help them figure out how to maybe end that relationship, uh, that outside relationship, and to move forward and to kind of process their feelings in a different way that maybe doesn't burden their partner. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not my place to tell them whether or not they should do that, but I can support them in whatever they decide to do. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so, so you did talk about this beginning stage of what working on the relationship can look like. What happens next? Great question. So that's usually when we get to the meaning making phase of things. You know, once the crisis has died down, then that's the time to look at the overall relationship and assess what elements or like what factors maybe contributed to this violation of trust. In this particular phase, we're in the crisis phase, the onus is more on the offending party to empathize with you know, the pain that they've caused or the impact of their choices. But when we're in the meaning making phase, we're looking at both parties at that point. You know, we're looking at things like, well, were there clear boundaries ever established? Has there been any communication around this topic and what you're comfortable with? Have you allowed things to maybe slide under the radar that you 
noticed but didn't want to speak up about? You know, are there huge power imbalances that are maybe contributing to what we're seeing? Like, is this person acting out in some way because they don't ha hold a lot of power within their primary relationship um, or where they hold all of the power? And so they feel like, you know, they can make the choices that they want to make. So it's a more like rounded view of the situation where both people have onus in it. And so that process, like it, I think Esther Perel refers to it as like the insight phase where you're trying to better understand what happened and why, and not just from a uh, blaming perspective, but really just from a space of wanting to better know each other, to better understand what needs are there that are maybe not being met. Um, and so that phase can last a while. Oftentimes there's more than one thing to look at. So we might kind of slowly work our way through them one by one. And then like once they they're able to develop almost like a shared understanding of what happened, they don't have to agree about all the details, but they're able to walk away with kind of like one story as to what led to it. Then we're looking at the future. You know, we're looking at, okay, what do you want this relationship to look like moving forward? And how do we kind of set you up for success in that? And I think with a lot of um, marriage and family therapists, like that does mean looking at boundaries, like realigning where those boundaries are. What are you comfortable with? What are you not? What do we share? Are passwords open? You know, things like that. But I, again, I keep going back to Esther Perel. I like that she brings like a slightly different perspective where she's like, well, it's not just all about setting new boundaries. Sometimes it's about setting a new vision for the future that, you know, you didn't necessarily see for yourselves, but it more fully embodies like who you are and want to be in the relationship. So she kind of frames it as, you can put like more locks and on everything, but when everything's locked up, that only entices us more to, you know, find ways around those barriers. So you're much better off once you have that insight with being collaborative and creative in how you go about meeting those needs, as opposed to, okay, well now you violated my trust. So you're no longer allowed to go out with friends or you have to be home by this time. Or, you know, it, it's much more effective to talk about what you're needing more of in the relationship, outside of the relationship and negotiate that and collaborate on that than it is to just set a bunch of roles. Mm -hmm. So setting the vision for the future, um, I, I think my view of what that looks like has expanded you know, from that perspective. Yeah, I love that. I mean, whenever things are restrictive, like it, it doesn't really work. Like it's not as effective as we think it is. And often those like heightened restrictions come from a place of lack of trust or insecurity. And it doesn't really tell us, as you're saying, like what our need is. So yeah, that, that seems like such a, a better plan to be set up for success going forward. So Say you have been cheated on in the past or or maybe your trust has been significantly violated by a previous partner. Like, how do you or how does one keep that experience from kind of like entering into a current or a newer relationship? Ooh, I don't know if you can. <laughs> I don't say that to be discouraging, but just because, you know, if you're talking about someone else violating your trust as individuals we don't have control over people's choices so if we take the risk of being in a relationship again even with a new person like there is a, an inherent risk in that that our trust may be violated in some way so i think we have to decide how we're going to interact with that should it come up again and we can certainly learn from our past experiences especially in that um, insight seeking phase where you can maybe better understand in what ways you contributed to how things played out before and you can make some intentional changes there. You know, that can be things like more clearly stating what your expectations or boundaries are. It can be creating a scenario where a person has to earn your trust and it's not just freely given, 
right? It can mean asking more questions of a potential partner um, than you did in a previous relationship. So I think there are things that you can do that, you know, clearly state your expectations that give the other person an opportunity to share what their challenges are or have been. But ultimately, you know, there's nothing you can do to foolproof yourself against, you know, being cheated on. That's that's the risk that you take in being in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I like that you bring up the balance of there's there's only so much you can do. And there actually are things that you can do um, to an extent. And and often people aren't thinking that, you know, they get caught in this victim mentality sometimes and and they're not they're not doing that insight digging they're not trying to figure out where they may have contributed because they're just so deeply hurt that they're not really willing to go there mm-hmm. right true and and i think in addition to that like there there can sometimes be like a heightened maybe hypervigilance too. Um, you know, whenever something scary or stressful or traumatic happens, it really does change the way that we view ourselves, view the world. And so like, whenever something like this happens, I, I, it's understandable that you might go into a next relationship kind of like with your antenna up, kind of just like trying to protect yourself in that way of like, oh, well, if I'm like, you know, always checking their phone or like when they go to the bathroom, I'm like, you know, snooping through their messages or like all of that stuff. It's like all of those efforts that we try to take to protect ourselves that, that actually create more stress and anxiety for us. It's like that reactivity that can come from, from being in it, being previously violated uh, in, in terms of trust. It's not actually helpful. Um, it's adaptive, but not helpful. Um, and what you're describing is a lot more proactive um, because it puts the agency on us because we don't really have control at all over what other people are going to do or not do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what you're describing is a trauma response. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what happens. And and our brains do that automatically. And it is a like, it's a, a, a form of self-preservation. And so like it happens, we don't, we understand why it happens. We don't have to get upset with ourselves that it happens. But if you can kind of frame it in that way where you understand this reaction is coming from this experience that I had, how can I learn from it rather than being controlled by it? Because I think those are two different things. Um, so you don't want to be controlled by the pain of your past. You want to actually process it and understand it so that you can enter into a new relationship you know, not without any fear, because like, there's going to be some fear involved, but with a lot more awareness of yourself, and maybe even an awareness of how you might respond or deal or interact with um, a potential violation of trust, it should it come up again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what if you are the person who has been the violator, the, the, quote unquote, cheater, like, what what can that person do um, to keep it from happening again? Or is it once a cheater, is. always a cheater? Uh, <laughs> of course, I don't believe that. <laughs> Just wanted to check. <laughs> My clients would be like, damn it, Carly. <laughs> I, I think that insight part, that meaning making, again, is very critical because when you are the person who has violated someone's trust, you know, you have to contend with that view of yourself that maybe doesn't totally align with how you view yourself or want to see yourself. Um, And it's a lot easier for us to consider those, like, uh, I won't call them excuses, but like those mitigating circumstances that lead to, an infidelity or some sort of like violation, but with other people, it's a, I mean, like we can judge that really quick. It's like, oh yeah, you know, she's this, he's that. But when it's you, you have to contend with your view of yourself versus like however you behaved or however you showed up in this last relationship. And people respond to that differently. Some people get very defensive and think about all of the reasons that they had to cheat all of the justifications, all of the things the other person did wrong, all the ways the other person made them feel small or insecure. 
And it's not that looking at those things aren't valuable, but if you're not willing to look at, you know, your own stuff, then the likelihood that you will find that circumstance again, like, "Eh, I'm sure you can find some reasons. No relationships are just without any reasons to be disgruntled, right? So I think it's that insight into, well, what drove this for me? And what maybe stopped me from being more honest about how I was feeling? And if I knew how I was feeling, how could I have communicated that better? Or how could I have asked for what I needed? Or how could I have managed my, you know, emotional reaction to feeling affirmed by someone else? Or, you know, how could I have noticed that differently, but then not acted on it if that's the agreement that I have in my relationship? So I think that meaning making and gaining that insight is so critical if you actually want to change it moving forward and not just make a reason that, you know, you can live with. So... If you're not in a relationship where infidelity has occurred, but you know somebody, you're, maybe you're friends with somebody, or maybe you're seeing it on TV and it's 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 happening somewhere in your life, how do you separate yourself from those experiences so that you're not, you know, taking yourself into their worlds and get really insecure about your own relationships because of those? Well, and I can even speak to like when I was like a newer therapist, I was working with a lot of like parents and couples and there was infidelity. I was working with like five couples and in the four couples that I was working with, there was some sort of infidelity. And it was also the summer that I got was getting married. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is going to happen. <laughs> For me, like, this is what marriage is, like, like, relationships are doomed. And so it like, and I will also say at that time, and our listeners, if if you've been listening, I, I like run anxious to begin with. So like, the anxiety was definitely higher then or like, maybe um, like for people that might have maybe more of like an anxious attachment style or something like that, just infidelity brings up um, for me anyway, like some fear, some, some, it's scary to think about. And so, yeah, I guess as, as Catherine, you were asking that question, I was thinking about like, yeah, that was me. (laughs) I'm, I'm them. I'm that person. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, this work will definitely (laughs) desensitize you a bit or just like kind of make you more aware of just how prevalent a lot of challenges are where, you know, that feeling of, oh, maybe I'll be exempt, I think just starts to like dwindle the more you learn and are exposed to because like, none of us are exempt from having the human experience, right? So like, regardless of what that challenge is, like you end up encountering some form of it. So, I I mean, I think to some degree, it's inevitable that when you see or hear about it, you know, something in our brains kind of connects to our own experiences. And for some people, that can be a trigger, you know, because if they went through something really traumatic, even just hearing it on TV or, you know, a friend in passing talking about it can really bring up a lot of feelings. But I haven't. Uh, maybe an interesting view on this. I don't necessarily think that that is all bad though. First, because it does normalize the human experience. And while we all want to uh, feel special to some degree in our relationships, there's a human element to just being in partnership with another person that, you know, it, it can be somewhat comforting to know that you're not the only one who struggles with this particular issue, you know, or that even couples maybe that you admire have been challenged in this way at some point. Mm -hmm. So it can kind of like level the playing field just a little bit of that. And also kind of that expectation thing that I was mentioning at the beginning, kind of help us to temper some of those lofty expectations um, and be a little more realistic about like we're two humans dealing with each other with insecurities and needs and wants and we're changing. And so like things are going to come up. It can also be a nice little dose of, 
awareness is probably too mild of a term, but the way Esther Perel refers to it is that like jealousy can actually do a little something for your relationship, like a help keep the spark when you're able to see your partner as an other and not just a part of you. Sometimes when we are so interconnected, we're like, Every aspect of our lives is with our partner. We watch movies together and then we work together and then we do that and we have dinner. And like, it's like we're one person, but you're not. Like, you're two separate people. And so there's an element of just noticing that, no, my partner is, is a different person. And like, other people might be attracted to him or her. Other people might um, notice them in that way. Like, there's something about recognizing them as an other that actually helps us to like appreciate and invest in that relationship in a different way. So if that awareness of, you know, some things going on over here is making you think about your relationship and how you might want to invest in it differently, maybe that could be a good thing, you know, cause it lets you know you're not foolproof and you know, you do have to invest in these relationships if you want to get out of them what you want, which is like, a concept that we talked about in premarital. So sometimes it's just that reminder to put a little investment back into your relationship. You know? I love that. Yeah, me too. There have been plenty of times when I've, when, when I've said to my husband, wait, so you don't think like this? <laughs> you're, you're not thinking this? And he's like, no, <laughs> but we're not the same. <laughs> Harsh reminder. <laughs> but it helps to keep a little bit of the spark, you know, because yes. you feel too much the same. Yeah. It can, you know, you be, you get married, you become family, you know, mm -hmm. but you still want to think of your partner romantically and sexually and not just as like a sibling. You know what I mean? So there, that, that separation like is necessary to some degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Face when I said sibling. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Carly, we've, we've talked a lot about the ins and outs of infidelity. And I think, I think we've gotten a lot. I'm, I'm, Yeah. <laughs> This was a jam-packed episode. Thank you. We really, we really packed it in. I, yeah, I feel like infidelity could we could get into it even more. I was going to say because I feel like we're just like just at the surface, and there's like this whole iceberg underneath. So mm -hmm. this is one of those topics like you could have an infidelity podcast mm -hmm. and every week talk about a different element of it's so true. Absolutely. Well, maybe yeah. this is a good plug. I don't. I don't know if you know this. Carly, or listen, if you're if you're tuning in as a newer listener, one thing that Catherine and I have begun to do periodically are therapist Q and A's, like where our listeners can write in around about like specific issues that they might be having and kind of get our take. And so maybe if we do have a listener that might be navigating through a challenge as it relates to loss of trust or infidelity, they can write in and we can have you on to help us answer the question. I'd love to do that. I hope I have a good answer for them, but I'd love to do that. <laughs> yes, yes. Send us send us an email to wishing you well at revivecfw.com if that's the case. Well, Carly, you know we have one more question to ask you, and you're familiar with it now. We want to know what you're ordering off your self-care menu. An appetizer, a main course, a dessert, or a three-course meal. Ooh, I would say that today when I completely finish for the day, number one, I will not be cooking. So that is, that's a little bit of self-care, but maybe a glass of wine with dinner or something, which is like a little different. I usually don't have during the week. And this weekend I will be celebrating my daughter finishing this year of school. She finished the third grade. Aww. So she's already decided where she wants to go to dinner. So I'm looking forward to a little family night out. <laughs> hey, wait, it's an accomplishment to finish third grade now. We get dinners. I mean, apparently, because she <laughs> didn't let me know. 
<laughs> she wanted to go to celebrate. So I guess so that's cute. what you do now. Love it. Hey, third grade is hard. You know? I mean, yeah, third graders, they're in there doing like fractions and all types of stuff that, you know, I haven't done in a while. So <laughs> gotta celebrate. Awesome. Well, I also want to know what it will be your wine of choice tonight. Ooh, I, it depends on what I'm feeling, Catherine. I don't, right now, I'm feeling like it might be a red, but I don't know. It, it probably just depends on what's upstairs <laughs> <laughs> and what pairs well with dinner, but probably a red tonight. Nice. I'm selfishly just like, oh, that sounds really good. I'm <laughs> right now, and all I've wanted is like prosecco for some reason for the last few months, and I can't have any. <laughs> I'll have an extra sip for you. <laughs> I don't like your choice though; it's too warm out for red wine. That is true. Yeah, but see, I was thinking about what I'm having for dinner, so I was thinking it might be a good pairing. But you're right; we'll see. Well, what about you, Amy? What are you ordering? So I have been in a reading slump. I just like can't find anything that I'm really interested in. And I like picked up like five books. I just like can't can't get into any of them. But I did start reading a book like two days ago that I finished like in a day and a half. And it completely got me out of my slump. And so now I'm ready to like dig back into reading again, which was such a big part of my self-care throughout like 2022. But like 2023 has been like a little bleh, meh. Everything's been like very meh for me. <laughs> and the book is? Oh, the book is Happy Place by Emily Henry. It's a little like rom com or it's a romance. Catherine, you'd probably love it. But I, it was a beautiful, it was beautiful. I cried. I laughed. It was, it was good. And it was a quick read. Like I said, I read it in like a day and a half. I got up, I couldn't sleep yesterday. I got up at like 4am and I, I was like 60% of the way through at 4am. And then by like 7am, I was done <laughs> like reading, gobbling it up. Like any spare moment I had, I, I just like read, read like a couple pages. So it's like a, a light, fun, good summer, kind of like beach read. Of course, my next book that I want to read is like, you know, about murder, you know? So, well, same, same, but different. Sitting down with a book sounds like so glorious mm. right now, but I, I couldn't even tell you the last time that I, I mean, if I, if I can't listen to it right now, it just, it doesn't happen, but the mm-hmm. thought of it sounds really, really enticing. So I might try to fit that in. Yeah, it's it's been so same, Carly. Like I just like couldn't I couldn't even like get my brain to focus on like reading a page or and like feeling like I had the energy or the time. And I don't know, something just kind of like opened (laughs) this week that it just felt like, oh, I'm free. Let me uh, let me do this. And it was nice. So, Catherine, what about you? What's on your menu? Mine, I'm gonna say it's a main course, but maybe an appetizer. Uh, a tapas a small yeah. plate <laughs> it's a small plate small plate with big big uh meaning <laughs> so so i have felt really great the last uh, i don't know like two months or so of this pregnancy and like energy wise so great like i feel like me Whereas in the first trimester, I felt like absolute dirt and like <laughs> just awful and wanted to sleep all the time and just like didn't feel like me in the slightest. And so I felt really great. Only like I was telling Amy right before we started recording, like I'm really tired today and this is weird. I don't, I'm not used to feeling tired. I don't know why I'm tired, but like I was, I was like judging it and I was really annoyed and I just have to be like, you know what? you're pregnant and like this happens. I don't know, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, maybe it's just woman. not, <laughs> maybe my body's just like, we're working really hard right now. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to lean into that and I'm going to give myself some rest when I need it and stop 
annoying myself by being like, wait, this was first trimester, Catherine. This isn't supposed to be now. And just be like, it is what it is. <laughs> You're tired. Find find some time to take a 20 minute nap or mm-hmm. at least um, go to bed early tonight or something. Yeah. 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 The compassion piece is so huge. Like Carly, you were saying, like your your body's like do it's making a baby. <laughs> Busy. <laughs> yeah, you probably just like made some fingernails or something today. Like you're doing big <laughs> things there. Like a whole toe probably grew. Like of course yeah. you're tired. <laughs> uh. So I hope you do get get some time for for a little nap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we hope that all of you are checking in on your self-care menu as well. And whether that's an appetizer, a main course, a dessert, or a three-course meal, make sure that you are taking care of yourself too. But we do want to just thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've if you've gotten to this point in the episode, you must like what you're hearing. So be sure to share it with a friend or a family member if you think it would be helpful or might resonate with them. Or you can give us a review. Make sure you are following us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe to Revive Center for Wellness YouTube channel where you can find that bonus podcast, Reactivity TV, and all other great wellness content on our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Instagram at Revive CFW. You can follow Catherine at Catherine Van Eyck, me at Amy Albero LCSW. Check out our website, revivecfw.com, and send us emails to wishing you well at revivecfw.com. Thank you so much. And until next time, we are wishing you well. <laughs>